Devoncast from Radio X. This is the Devoncast, the regular podcast looking at local and regional issues in Devon, the politics, the people, and how decisions here affect how we live, work, and enjoy our county. I'm Guy Henderson. And I'm Alison Stevenson. And the gentleman in the corner is Bradley Gerard. Brad, welcome. Thanks, Guy. Good to have you on the podcast. Uh, you've just joined the team here, the uh, Local Democracy Reporting Service through Radio X. What, uh, what councils will you be covering for us? I will be covering Devon County Council, East Devon District Council and Mid-Devon District Council. Brilliant. Uh, tell us a little bit about yourself, Bradley. You're, um, you're based in South Devon. Yes, I live in South Devon in a village called Alfred and Jifford near Kingsbridge. And I've been a journalist for about 13, 14 years now. I started off in local press at the Express and Echo here in Exeter. There you go. And uh, yeah, then a um, bit of financial and business journalism after that. And enjoying it so far? I am enjoying it, yeah. It's great to be part of a great team. And um, yeah, getting into, like you say in the intro, you know, all the things that help make this county run or maybe not run, as the case may be. Yeah, there's some interesting characters to meet out there, aren't there? There are indeed. So the Devoncast this week, we've got lots packed into the Devoncast this week. We'll be talking about wind farming in Braunton. Uh, Brad's been to uh, an angry public meeting about Seton Hospital. Feelings running pretty high there, aren't they? They are, yes. And I've been to a few community meetings and a few as packed as that one. We'll hear about that a little bit later on. We'll hear about how Exeter has become a bit of a divided city. We'll hear about a, a piece of a sacred relic, which is going back to its original owners in Canada. There's a temple in Torridge. There's a rock choir in South Devon. Devoncast. From Radio X. But first of all, we talk uh, to Torbay's Tory defectors. Now, Torbay Council has been rocked by the decision of two of its Conservative councillors to, uh, to stand down from the, uh, the party and go their own way. Patrick Joyce and Catchy Madison were elected to the council for the first time as Tories in the May local elections, but now they've set up Prosper Torbay, a kind of a splinter group, which leaves the council in a very interesting position. They've been explaining what made them do it. Here's Councillor Joyce. I think it was a very hard decision and it took a lot of thought. We've been thinking about it probably now for over three months. And I think it got to the point where we were looking at the transparency, being able to scrutinise, and it just wasn't what we were looking for in our role as backbenchers and being a part of the administration. We almost felt we were part of the administration without actually having any kind of control or direction in relation to the decisions that are making. And really, it's really important in relation to scrutiny that where we are with this once in a generation, with spending the money that we've got coming to Torbay, that we're obviously making sure we're doing the right decisions. And scrutiny and integrity for us is really important. And that came to the final decision where we felt we had no choice but to leave the, leave the Conservative group. I should apologise there, by the way, because the, um, the sound isn't great on that recording, and that's my fault, which I'll explain a little bit later on, a bit of a microphone problem there. But as they say, it's all about making the big decisions and making sure those decisions are scrutinised properly as the Bay sets out to spend many millions of pounds in government money on showpiece regeneration projects. Uh, here's Councillor Madison. Well, that's where the mistakes have been made in the past. It, you need to look... Actually, you need to pass it in front of a lot of eyes before everything is picked up. That's what they do in professional situations in the private sector, and it's what we should do in the, in, in the uh, government sector too. Now, all of this has certainly left the council delicately poised. Indulge me for a moment while I do some maths here. Before the rebels jumped ship, there were 19 Conservatives on the council, 15 Liberal Democrats and two Independents who worked with the Lib Dems as an alliance, and that gave the Tories an overall majority of two. 
Now, though, the Conservatives are down to 17, the same number of councillors as the Lib Dem and Independent Alliance, with Prosper Torbay holding the balance of power. And who knows what might happen if any more disaffected Conservatives decide to join. I think that there could be. I think that probably there is some interest uh, in, in what we're trying to do. But I think there would have to be some shared values in that because... We know why we're doing it. We wouldn't want any mix-up and, and, and um, muddying the water. Hey, who said covering councils was dull? There's been all sorts of intrigue in Torbay this week. Conservative council leader David Thomas told me that he was bitterly disappointed at the move, which could in theory leave him vulnerable to a vote of no confidence, although that's highly unlikely at the moment, I would have thought. He says the two councillors should put their new status to the test by going back to the voters for by-elections. So, will they? I think myself and Katia come from it from two directions. Um, one is, obviously, I listen to what people in the ward have got to say to me. It's very important for two years as part of a candidate and being elected and living in Wellswood. I'm part of the community. I'm very much what you call a community activist, and I'm very passionate about Wellswood. And I'd like to think that on the work I've done on charity and on community events like the footpath, litter picking and all the other stuff I've done within supporting Wellswood, that I'm well known. So I would say a lot of the vote would have been personal, but I'm not debating for one fact that people might have voted for the Conservative Party. People know how to get hold of me. Um, my details are in the public domain. And if they want to express their opinions to me, of course I will listen. But I would use the analogy, um, Guy, in relation to this, is if someone has just left the SNP and gone to the Conservative Party, and in relation to that, the Conservatives didn't say, let's have um, a by-election because before we can accept you, we need to make sure that all the SNP voters were happy with your decision. So it does, in a way, kind of creep of double standards. But I'm very keen that I listen to my people that live and work in the ward of Wellswood. It's very important to me that I take stock of what they've got to say. But from my point, I'm doing what I'm doing because I care deeply about the town, care deeply about Wellswood. I have integrity. And a lot of the things that the Conservative group stand for, we could possibly fall behind. It's not that we are Liberal Democrats or we're voting for the other independent group. We are Conservatives, but all we're saying is we want more scrutiny, we want more decision-making scrutinised, and we just really want to be in a process that we're adding value to our roles as councillors, and that's for the whole of Torbay. And how about you on the by-election question? Um, well, I, I'd say that I'm very sensitive to it. I'm listening. I want to. I want to know what my ward think about it. But the reality is, I've only had three ward members, uh, residents, express a negative view, and I don't think they voted for me. But nonetheless, that matters. Um, and I would say that overall, I've had nothing but a very positive reaction. And I think that tells you that what we're talking about is something which really resonates. With, with locals and that perhaps has been around, these problems have been around for a couple of decades. So there you go, that was, uh, was Councillor Katia Madison who with uh, Councillor Patrick Joyce has quit the Tories on Torbay Council to set up a new group and the terrible sound on those interviews was entirely my fault. I've got new lapel microphones. They're really good. They're really smart. Yeah, we believe lapel you, Guy. We believe you. Um, and I mic'd both councillors up so we'd get rid of the wind and the seagulls in the background. And then I think I stood them too close together. <laughs> so there was a terrible echo. So my apologies to, to the <laughs> listeners and to the councillors because I made them sound as if they were standing in a very small metal room, which they weren't. They you were. need to learn a plate. 
I do. I know, that's it. But uh, still to come, uh, we'll be at that uh, public meeting at Colliford and talking about the future of Seton Hospital. We'll be talking about Exeter's low-traffic neighbourhoods. Uh, we've got a temple in Torridge. We've got all kinds of things coming up for you. But first, um, a bit of hot air. Yeah, well, a bit of, a bit of wind farm, Alison. Yeah, pretty powerful it is up there in Braunton. Um, at the moment, the, the council's residents and MP are, are getting quite hot under the co- collar over the wind farm plan, which would see two or more years of construction work and heavy vehicle traffic in a tourism hotspot up there in Braunton. So the offshore wind farm um, is being proposed by Flotation Energy um, and it's 50 kilometres off the uh, North Devon coast, but it would involve quite a lot of onshore um, electrical infrastructure. And that would come through Saunton Sands and Braunton Burrows, which have um, special designations all over the place, to be honest. Um, and it's probably what what the opponents are saying is the worst possible place you could uh, pick to dig up the land for cable laying. The six turbines um, are going to be uh, part of the flow project, which uh, which destined for Devon, Cornwall and South Wales as part of the government's commitment to be net zero by 2050. No one's disagreeing with the wind power, but the site of the infrastructure is a real hot potato there. Residents, res- resident Ruth McDonnell explains. Everybody here, everybody I've spoken to, thought when they heard about the wind farm, what a great thing to be doing. And it's only in the last three weeks that people have realised that actually the plans involve bringing the cable onshore at Saunton Beach, despite the fact the wind farm's 52 kilometres offshore, so there's an awful lot of places it could go go onshore. And that means um, disturbing not only our beach, but also an SSI, a UNESCO biosphere, and um, there is lots of wildlife. There are kingfishers, there are otters, and most importantly, probably bats. It's a very, very important horseshoe bat uh, roost as well. We also, by the way, have behind those things a medieval field system, and it's, it's one of only two left in the country, and it'll also impact on that as well. So I can't imagine a worse place to be thinking of digging up for a, a green project In terms of tourism, you can't use our lovely beach, which is what we're famous for, unless you can park at the beach. But actually, the contractors are going to, for two years, have their compound in the car park. That's where their drilling machinery will be. And that will be on the receiving end of, on their own statistics, as many as 92 HGVs a day through our tiny uh, village roads. And there's no other way to the beach than those. So if the car park's out of use, people in reality won't be able to access the beach because there is no other place to park. If you can't park there, you can't use it. It's really, really a bad thing for our village. Our village is known for traffic and its beautiful beach. The traffic is going to be awful for two years, at least, and our beach will be inaccessible. So ruination of our beach and our economy. And if the tourists can't be here... It doesn't mean just two years no tourism because we've got to get them back again afterwards and that's not going to be easy either. And here's uh, Chris Delaney outside the school in the centre of the village which has some of the worst air quality in the country. I think the whole idea of uh, wind power is a really, really good idea. Renewable energy is great and we should support it. I just think this one's been very badly communicated. It hasn't been thought through. They haven't engaged with the local community and understood the issues that it could raise and where there are viable alternatives. And we've just heard that the power station at all the Discot is going to be expanded so they could bring the cables in there, which would be great, solve lots of problems. The village is congested already and trying to get heavy goods vehicles. If you try and get two past here going in opposite directions, they won't actually fit without going on the pavements because the pavements are very narrow. 
But I'm fully aware of the bigger picture and do want to support what they're doing. It's, it's very disappointing. They're sort of given green energy a bad name, I would say. Yeah, so all these uh, energy initiatives to bring power in onshore need to be coordinated rather than individual companies competing with each other. So done in a consistent way, which is what our local MP, Selene Saxby, suggested only last week. So they need to get together and work together, work out a solution for everybody, share resources. Helen Cooper also is against this. She's from Save Our Sands campaign group and uh, here she is down on the beach at Saunton Sands. I think there are loads of happy memories created here for both uh, local people, surfing population, people that come down with their dogs and their kids. It's like a park. Like if you look around us now, people just use it as a public amenity. But also the local tourism uh, industry could be severely hit if this plan goes ahead. Um, so is it have economic impact, which, you know, so many in this area, hospitality is such a big thing and tourism. Um, there's knock on, you know, with all the subsidiary sort of jobs that go with uh, tourism. I don't know, um, people that, that um, do uh, Airbnb, people that uh, do the sheets for them, that c- clean the houses, you know, you get the picture. It's, it's a substantial, uh, it's, our, it's our main industry down here and this is something that this beach is something that the locals really enjoy and visitors love i mean now we've got people down here just walked past us that have been surfing we've got people walking their dogs people digging sandcastles you know it's just a really lovely public space and that's what we're trying to protect as well as the impact it would have on the wider environment with traffic pollution noise there's the potential for 24 7 working down here with with lights on you know as they dig Um, and all of that is just would be a massive disruptions nobody here is complaining about wind farms nobody here is against green energy that's not what we're saying what we're saying is please route the cable somewhere else north devon district council for Bournton, councillor graham bell likens the demonstration wind power site to hs2 my biggest personal concern is that if this project goes ahead and even if they've put in all of the safety measures that we are promised and they seem to be very robust in what they've planned to do what you could see is that the entire project could just be pulled at a moment's notice so where and i always use the example largely of hs2 which is obviously a massive engineering project that was meant to link london to manchester and stream 20 minutes off of travel times and yet that's been pulled so what you've got is 180 ancient woodlands that have all been partially destroyed in order to create a railway line that may never fully exist and if it does even get to the level of completion they want now then it's not going to link London to Manchester it's going to be just this odd little project that happened now that's London to Manchester and you know you see that Westminster has great passion about empowering the north and using that and of course London is a very important centre North Devon is in its own way it's so hugely isolated and it's often largely ignored by Westminster so you have that very real risk that if the government changes its mood or its mind or something happens down the line in terms of finances, the project could be shelved halfway through. You'd have huge scars in the landscape. You'd have these drainage ditches that could be compromised with no safety put in to protect them. If the project goes ahead and then halts for unexpected reasons, then you could do serious damage to this landscape. And um, that would be tragic. And no one's going to look at repairing that for the people of North Devon. A North Devon MP, Selene Saxby, chair of the all-party group parliamentary group for the Celtic Sea. Sorry, that sounded a bit weird there, didn't it? There's a lot of groups. <laughs> uh, says there should be a national plan for offshore wind with communities included in discussions and recompensed appropriately. 
So please do not think that this is a NIMBY issue. North Devon is home to the Fullerbrook Wind Farm, which when built was the largest onshore wind farm in the country at 66 megawatt. Yet this project established Fullerbrook CIC, set up with one million pounds for the then owners of the wind farm, which has now given over 1.58 million pounds in community projects and receives 100,000 pounds per annum from the current owners. I find it bewildering that White Cross have seemingly made no offer of community involvement. Indeed, their only offer is to decimate huge sections of coastline for their own financial gain. I am gravely concerned that White Cross are not acting in any way appropriately with this development and taking advantage of the planning system which they have chosen to use. I very strongly believe that the entire Celtic Sea flow project should be considered as one, as a national infrastructure project to enable proper strategic planning and ensure we do hit our offshore wind targets and that communities are included in these decisions and recompensed appropriately for hosting infrastructure. It is increasingly possible this development will undermine all the support which has been generated along this coastline for flow, with hundreds of objections being lodged and further meetings planned by local parishes in the coming weeks. It seems the developers have carte blanche. Flotation Energy um, declined to be interviewed by us. They got a real grilling uh, parish council meeting last week where 200 residents turned up. But they said to us that we will remain open, communicative and factual as we develop White Cross so that we can find the best way to make the project work for everyone. We welcome all feedback and discussion on how to improve and streamline our project operations. North Devon is expected to discuss the application for the electrical infrastructure before Christmas. Good story, that isn't it? Wind yeah. for this, everybody wants wind power, don't they? But it comes Indeed. with big, big infrastructure, doesn't it? It really does. It really does. But you know, the, the what Selene's saying is, let's put all the infrastructure together so that it, they all, all these projects come through in one place, so we don't have to disturb too much of the land. Interesting. Mm. And it, I mean, this is not a project that's going to happen overnight, is it? This is going to run for quite some time for people up there. It certainly is. And I remember wind wind turbine discussions planning applications in years gone by yeah so yeah. you know this is the taking it forward isn't it so uh expect it to come with you know, it's not going to be smooth is it let's put it that way so the devon cast will be keeping tabs on that Certainly will. still to come we'll be talking to the leader of exeter city council about the active streets uh experiment which is going on in exeter at the moment uh, and we'll have music to finish from rock choirs across south devon but brad you've been out in the east of the county um, you've been to a public meeting at Collerford talking about Seton Hospital. Fill us in on that a little bit. Yeah, absolutely, Guy. It was um, a very busy meeting. Um, campaigners in and around Seton packed Collyford Memorial Hall as part of their fight for the future of their community hospital. Essentially, what's happening is that a wing of the hospital, whose construction was funded entirely by the community, is at risk of being demolished. Its fate is in the balance because it's being handed back to a body called NHS Property Services, which is part of the NHS that leases out sites to local trusts. Um, and the issue here is that NHS Property Services charges roughly £300,000 in rent and other charges um, for the void space in Seaton Hospital. It's a lot of money. It's a lot of money. And campaigners who want to save the space obviously can't afford that level of rent. Mm -hmm. um, Martin Shaw, who's a former county councillor, he hastily organised this community meeting um, in a bid to develop a plan to save the hospital wing and find a way for local organisations who provide much needed services to be able to take on the space. 
There were a host of local politicians there um, on the panel on the stage at Collyford Memorial Hall addressing, as I said, a very packed uh, meeting of which there was only standing room and people even poking their heads through the doors from outside. Um, and one of the um, speakers there was uh, Tiverton and Honiton MP Richard Ford, who has raised this issue actually at Prime Minister's Questions, and he's also called a debate on the topic, um, which he'll be doing this month. Um, he said the strength of feeling in the community was incredibly robust and felt that the government, via NHS Property Services, could find a way to enable the winter to stay open under a cheaper uh, rate of rent, and uh, we hear from him here now. This isn't about bureaucracy. This is, this is about a, a political decision. It was in 2016 that Seaton Hospital was given over to NHS Property Services. It's a private company with one shareholder, the Secretary of State for Health. If the Secretary of State for Health wanted to, he could change this tomorrow. He could ensure that Seaton Hospital is available for use by the lo local community, and he could make that happen tomorrow. This is not about bureaucracy. It's about a political decision. There's Richard Ford there. Um, the problem is uh, that some of those involved in recent discussions with the NHS have found their position on this issue of the rent. They yeah. found the NHS immovable, basically. Um, NHS Property Services charges a rate of rent that relates to a clinical space. However, campaigners are saying that their plans won't involve cl clinical services. They'll instead be providing a health hub with services, including those aimed at helping patients with dementia. Um, Kirstine House is the chief executive at Seaton and District Hospital League of Friends, and she explained the importance of the hospital wing and, and her experience experience so far in meetings of trying to talk to the NHS about this. Yeah, I've pressed the wrong button there, Brian. Sorry, <laughs> I've pressed the wrong button there. So we'll, uh, I, but th I, we'll we'll get that clip going again for you in a moment. But that's, I mean, this is a big issue, isn't it? The NHS buildings, the closing of hospitals, um, and, you know, even just dealing with a, a wing of a hospital like that can really get to a community. And it's good, in a way, to see people motivated, to see people getting themselves um, interested in that kind of thing, isn't it? And to, uh, to, to get something to come forward like this and get that many people at a public meeting. Well, yeah. pretty interesting. I have spent a lot of the last three or four months talking to a lot of people, all of whom are keen to um, run services from Seaton. We could put together a fantastic health and wellbeing hub to look after our community, um, dementia services, befriending services, bereavement services to work alongside our gold standard Seaton Hospice at home. Um, what we need is the space. Um, and everybody feels that they would love to do this, but the space is too expensive. That is the one message that we get from absolutely everybody. So I've been involved in negotiations uh, with NHS Property Services to see if we can find a way round that. Um, but I have found them immovable in their position. That was um, Kirstine House there, the Chief Executive at Seaton and District Hospital, League of Friends. Um, the meeting, as I said earlier to you guys, was absolutely packed. There about 250 to 300 people there in attendance. And residents heard that campaigners' plans could help reduce the number of long outpatient trips required by Seaton patients, who at present have to go all the way to Exeter's RD&E hospital. Plus the fact that the town's elderly population has a higher prevalence of age-related diseases than the national average. So the proposals by campaigners here would be really sought after in the community and would really help um, yeah, patients locally. Uh, the, I spoke to uh, several residents at the meeting 
Um, and here are clips from a couple of um, ladies that I spoke to there. As a community health nurse, for the community to get local services, but in the current situation where um, we've seen ambulances queuing outside the Royal Devon and Exeter, we need to get people out of the hospital and back home or into local services as quickly as possible also to have an end of life care in our own community is really important I feel very passionate that we need to keep the hospital building in our town it belongs to our town the majority of the town built it they were bought bricks and that's why it exists and we desperately need it we need it as a hospital to be honest to stop people having to stay in Exeter and people can't even get there with a bus. Um, but if it can't be used as a hospital, then there's lots of other things we could use it for. So um, those are just two voices of very many who spoke at the meeting, and very passionately so. Um, this story will run on and on. The um, the the group that's kind of been formed out of this meeting now to try and take all these arguments forward is going to try and lobby Devon County Council's uh, Health Scrutiny Committee and that should be at some point uh, later this month so hopefully the campaigners will have uh, some victory there. Thanks Brad, like we were saying uh, the community's really getting involved in that one isn't it? They really are. And what was really, really impressive at the meeting was that there was a lot of genuine feeling, a lot of uh, sensible suggestions being put forward. As I said, the wing was fully funded by the community and the hospital was half funded by the community. So this is a community that isn't just annoyed at a decision being made. It's actually really involved in this hospital in a tangential way. And um, yeah, it was amazing to see the strength of feeling at the meeting. Once again, Devoncast will keep tabs on that one. And here's another story that's been running for a while. If you've spent any time in and around Exeter over the past couple of months, you'll know all about the Active Streets experiment. The idea has been to create a so-called low-traffic neighbourhood around parts of Heavertree and Whipton, and that means bollards and wooden boxes in certain streets, um, only certain uh, categories of traffic allowed through. Supporters say it's cutting pollution and improving road safety, but opponents say it's increasing journey times and leading to more congestion and pollution on the boundary roads around the low-traffic neighbourhood. On the last Devoncast, we spoke to protesters who were making their voices heard outside the Guildhall, um, having their say about the scheme. This time, we're joined by Exeter City Council leader Phil Bialik, uh, who tells us what might be done to reunite what has become a divided city. Uh, we asked him why Exeter needs action over its traffic problems. We are successful. What are we, second or third most expanding city in the country? The biggest travel to work area outside of London, and that includes places like Bristol. Yeah. You know, people travel a lot of way. We've got people traveling from North Devon to our colleges. Uh, our university is expanding. It's a Russell Group University. We are a city which has got a tremendous future. However, we do get blocked up with traffic. We're an old medieval town, and nobody's proposing to not houses down to make way for roads we've got to look at the problems of reducing car traffic in Exeter now that's a difficult issue because we've heard this morning how people rely on cars in their life and we've got to try to somehow take that into consideration now I believe that's what this trial will do I didn't hear anybody saying we don't like this for our neighborhood what I heard them saying is we have difficulty in managing our lives around this issue so that is the problem we've got to resolve we've already seen an improvement to allow taxis through there was a lot of uh, 
um, issues about taxis and school taxis. Good remarks there about blue badge holders. That could be resolved by issuing some sort of pass or something. We can do that. Now, at County Hall last week, the uh, the Highways Committee, which came up with the plan in the first place, met, and some councillors said that they felt strongly about the way the consultations had been carried out. Here's Councillor Bialik again. I know everybody wants them to be listened to, and we, they will be listened to, but we have to accept that there we heard that 4,000 uh, representations, all that has to be analysed, put together in such a way that we all understand what the views are. But there will be some decisions that will be made that not everybody likes because that is what happens in democracy, I'm afraid. Not everybody will get their own way. As we said, this has all left the city a bit divided, at least on the question of traffic. It's hard to see a middle ground at the moment, but the trial of the low-traffic neighbourhood still has well over a year left to run. And the council leader remains hopeful that an answer can be found that satisfies all of Exeter's citizens. Well, that will be a very good thing that I would like to bring people back together but I think there's some learning to be done and understanding of where we're coming from. The, this consultation process, believe it or not, has been going on for a number of years and it seems to have bypassed a lot of people. Now it's bypassed a lot of people for a couple of reasons in my view. One, perhaps we weren't paying attention to it fully. We didn't think it was going to happen. It was something in the future. It doesn't involve us, does it? And the other thing is, I think that uh, the county council, sadly, uh, have not actually got their message out to enough people in the consultation process. So people feel angry that they've not been listened to. They feel that they've been done to. And uh, that is a feeling and a perception, which sadly is going to take some time to resolve. This, again, is one of those stories that's going to run and run, folks. You'll be uh, interested to hear this on many Devoncasts still to come, I think. Um, there have already been some concessions to allow taxis to go through, and there may be more compromises to come. Uh, but the issues of, uh, of congestion, traffic and pollution in Exeter won't solve themselves. Uh, we'll give the last word to Councillor Bialik. In short, we've got to do something in Exeter. Exeter has got to change. It is changing, and it will be for the better. We've got to all have to revisit what we do in our lives. We've been doing that now with uh, the cost of living crisis. We're being asked to make changes for our own benefit. These are for our benefits, for our children's benefits, and for it's all very well people like me of a certain generation waxing lyrical about how it used to be. But do you know what? It will never be like that if we carry on in this way. So we've got to make some changes which are acceptable. And that will be the secret in this consultation and introducing this trial is to make sure we get it right because I think people agree with the principle. We've got to look at the traffic pollution coming up through East Wanford Hill, in through Poslow Bridge at certain times of the day. We've got to recognise people have got health issues. I'm an asthmatic. I fully understand what they're saying. We need to get it better. I'm watching there some children cycling away here at County Hall. That's got to be encouraged, for goodness sake. When I was a kid, I went everywhere on my bike. As a parent, we all worry when our children go out on our bikes, don't we? We do worry. This period has got to be used for successful consultation. And I'll just say this to everybody, shouting at one another is not going to get us there. And he's right. The consultation continues. And if you're in Exeter, make sure you have your say. Have you, either of you been caught in the, um, the, the road system yet? 
Mm. Well, actually, I, I came to meet a friend a little while ago next to on Magdalen Road. And I used to yeah. live on Magdalen Road. Yeah. My sat nav was telling me to not go the way up it I would ordinarily have done previously. And I was like, why can't I do that? And I ignored oh my, my sat nav and I realised what was going on. It's mm. now, you know, there's street furniture there to make it more amenable. Yeah. And actually, sat there in a cafe on the street. It was more amenable. It was really actually lovely. Interesting, isn't it? Yeah, I went in. I, I went in to take some pictures just after the meeting, and after I'd had a chat with Phil by Alec, I thought I need to go and take some photographs of this to go with the stories that we're writing. And I did get a little bit lost because I had to turn around, I had to do a U-turn, mm. I had to go down a street I wasn't expecting. But it's the consultation is the key thing. If people feel strongly about it, it's important that they they make them with their voices heard, mm. isn't it, with all these things? It is. And, you know, the whole emphasis is about getting people on their bikes and using something other than a car to get around. So, you know, it's important we have those spaces for other things as well. That's the future, isn't it? We all have to it somehow is. get out of our cars. If public transport is decent, if it's safe to cycle yep. and we're fit enough to walk, then, you know, we can do it. But uh, let's see how it goes. OK, still in Exeter. Um, i got a nice a bit of a story here about a ceremonial headdress worn by a First Nation Canadian way back in the 1800s, which is causing a bit of head scratching, if you'll pardon the pun. I want to tell you a story, as Max Bygraves used to say, for our, uh, for our older listeners, Max Bygraves, for our younger <laughs> listeners, they'll be going, Max who? But there you go. The sacred headdress that was on display at the Royal Albert Memorial Museum in Exeter for more than 90 years, it's after being donated by the family of a Devon man who was the Lieutenant Governor of Canada's Northwestern Territories. It's known as a bird bundle, and the Blackfoot Nation of Alberta in Canada wants it back. Uh, they say it's been away for, from its rightful home for far too long. It's a very, very, very special piece for the Blackfoot Nation, and that's the reason why there's no picture of it on the website, because I asked for a picture, and they said, well, you have to understand that this is such a sacred object that we don't want pictures of it on websites and in newspapers, and you kind of understand that. So that's why the story about it on the Radio X website doesn't have a picture of the actual headdress, in case anybody's wondering about that. But we do know it's made from buffalo horns, eagle feathers, indigo bunting bird feathers, red-tailed hawk, cloth, quills, brass bells, and it would have been worn by a member of the Holy Buffalo Woman Society. It was, um, it was left to the museum by a gentleman by the name of Edgar Dudney, now, I don't know if he's a forerunner of the Plymouth Pasty family. You never know whether he's, a, whether he's a forerunner of either, but somebody out there will be able to tell us. He was born into poverty in Biddeford, left England to find his fortune, worked on the Canadian Pacific Railroad and was appointed uh, Indian Commissioner in 1892, which is not a title that somebody would have now, but you'll have to bear with us. That was his title then. Uh, not much is known about how he acquired the headdress, but a report to Exeter City Council's Executive Committee, which meets this week, says it wouldn't have been given away freely. Uh, and it probably means that it was seized as part of the assimilation process um, in which European and American culture and religion um, was forced on the indigenous people. But the Blackfoot people have decided that they want it back. It's a sacred piece. They contacted the museum quite a long time ago, now 10 years ago, and said it shouldn't be on public display, so the museum did the right thing and took it off public display. Now the people want it back. And by the time you listen to, it, to this, the uh, City Council Committee may already have made the decision. I think it's a given that they'll send it back. And I think that's a great story. I think it's the right thing to do. It means such a lot to these people, and it was taken away from them in dubious circumstances mm. i think it's the right thing to do but there are people who will say that museum pieces are there for us to learn from and they should be there so i mean there is an alternative viewpoint but i think it should go back what do you think yeah 
I think it should. Yeah, I, mean, I think you can still, your point about learning from artefacts is true, but that doesn't necessarily mean that the artefacts have to be in the museum to learn about them, especially mm. if they've been, um, you know, if they're there at that museum through dubious means. It might not be that the museum's management currently has anything to do with that. No, quite, quite. But obviously culturally, yeah. Yeah. You know, we're dealing with a lot of these things, aren't we, that we've got in yeah. our museums that are very precious to other uh, people around the world and um, I guess we have to accept that those items are actually theirs and not ours. It's true and he, look here's a, a good application of AI which everybody's talking about now for a museum piece like that photograph it film it film it in its natural location film it in Canada and let people here have a look at it that way maybe that's the way to do it. Anyway, I, I'm pretty confident that story's going to have a happy ending. We'll, um, we'll bring you that on a future Devoncast. And Ali, you've got a fascinating story here, haven't you? Something coming from Torridge. It's an art story. We love an art story. We do love an art story, yes. And uh, there is a piece of art which has been valued at a million pounds. It's a full-size building um, called The Temple by Appledore Sculptor Sandy Brown. Now, um, Sandy, being a local resident... Um, would like to offer this piece of sculpture to uh, Torres District Council for the cut price of £350,000. Bargain. Yeah, so the structure was actually commissioned for Sotheby's annual exhibition of monumental sculpture at Chatsworth House in Derbyshire a few years ago. It's been on the TV and also Jeremy Vines even made a film about it. It, It's quite a famous piece, um, but it's sitting in Sandy's studio at the moment um, and she's inviting councillors to go and take a look at it. But what she says is it it could be quite an amazing thing for for Biddeford. It could put the town on the map and uh, could be a centre of cultural innovation. Um, And the thing is, what she actually wants it to be is a place of um, calm energy and joyfulness, a temple of the South, she says. Um, She wants to spread that joy to Biddeford. So the temple would be used for non-religious ceremonies. She tells us a bit more about it here. It was actually triggered by um, a discussion with a friend of mine who is a, an officer for another district council in, in the UK. And he happened to say that it's district councils who ma- manage our registry offices and our crematorium and that they should be having spaces that are contemporary and ap- applicable for everybody. Obviously, if that that's makes perfect sense. And I live in Torres District Council, and so to offer it to Torres District Council first is the area in which I live. It needs something like this. It needs a cultural hub to put it on the map, and it can be leading the way in the UK in terms of, you know, be the first district council to actually have a contemporary space that is spiritually uplifting for contemporary rituals. So the temple's made of 5,000 hand-painted tiles. It looks pretty impressive, to be honest. Um, And some of the local vicars are are, are supporting this plan. Um, Former vicar of of Torrington, John Cavosso, um, and um, former vicar of Appledore, Ian Lovett, told us what they think, because there's three-quarters of Devon couples now are opting for a non-religious ceremony. Here they are. It's almost like growing up from childhood to adulthood. And so what we've had in our childhood. I'm a retired vicar 13 years and I'm in the middle of doing three funerals in church. So some people want that and other people don't. It's like we're, as we're getting, we're expanding beyond the traditions that we've had. So we don't want the fundamentalist side of religion, which is damaging to, you know, 
the world really so we can see in gaza and israel at the moment we want a, a, a deeper and broader understanding of spirituality there are plenty of celebrants who are non-denominational and can take these services or whatever you know and in a sense they're they're made up on not on the spot but they're much richer and they're not they don't have a formality about them just very lovely so that's the temple, which could also host school groups um, where sculptor Sandy Brown has offered to teach them about art, culture and sacred ceremonies. She's saying that it would be surrounded by railings to deter any vandalism, which could be an issue, um, as it is in many parks across the country. Uh, anyway, it's, it's food for thought for the council, who will make a decision on that on the, at a later date. That's another one. I really hope that comes off, don't you? I yeah, definitely, yeah, yeah it sounds like a it's a lot of money still for a council yeah. to find, though. So it's, you know, it, it's going to be a big decision for them. But it'd be wonderful to have something, I think, quite spectacular like but that. In time. Maybe there's a benefactor out there somewhere. Maybe somebody will win the lottery this weekend and, uh, and do that. So. Be a fabulous thing to do. We're going to finish with some music in a moment, but while um, while we've got you, let's just Brad. Thank you very much for coming in. Welcome to the podcast. Brad will be a regular voice on the podcast. Ali, thank you very much. It's been another Devoncast here, but we're going to finish on a high note. Ali, take us into the last piece. OK, so uh, we're we're approaching the season to be jolly. Sorry about that for anyone who doesn't like Christmas. But, Not December yet. Uh, you know, well, it's never too early as far as I'm <laughs> concerned. Uh, rock choirs across South Devon are warming up their vocal calls to perform at concerts and festive light switch-ons over the next few weeks. Rock choirs, the UK's award-winning contemporary choir, with 400 singing groups across the country. And in in South Devon, we've got four, Plymouth, Torquay, Tynmouth and Newton Abbott. And it's growing in popularity as more and more people find singing um, a great release and of stresses and that kind of thing. Um, choir leader Richard Toomer took time out of his busy schedule to have a chat with me about what makes being a Rocky so much fun. It's a choir for absolutely everybody. It's um, all inclusive. Uh, we don't audition members. People can come along with no experience, lots of experience, it doesn't matter. Uh, it's a place for people, a safe place for people to come along and just sing with other people. Uh, it's supposed to be a lot of fun. Uh, it's good for our mental health. It's good for our physical health. It's good for our mood. And it, there's no there's no pressure on people when they come along. Um, I'm not gonna be putting pressure on people to, to get every single note right and uh, to learn every single song in a repertoire. It's supposed to be a bit of an escape from the pressures of life, if you like, if that's the right phrase to use. So you come along on a Tuesday night, for example, to Plymouth, and you have 90 minutes where you can just shut everything else out and just enjoy yourself and, uh, and have a bit of therapy through singing. That's great. And uh, the songs, I'm guessing people will know what the songs are. They'll sort of have them in their mind. But then if they've got to forget all about the original version and learn yours. They have, yeah. That's that's the trick, isn't it? Well, yeah. I mean, a lot of our material is, if you listen to Radio 2, you're going to hear you're going to hear a track list from Rock Choir, aren't you? I mean, so this term we're doing Stevie Wonder. For once in my life, we've just learned Sweet Child of Mine by Guns N' Roses. Uh, going loco down in Acapulco, right through to the ballads like A Thousand Years by Christina Perry, uh, Hallelujah. Um, so it's a real, a real broad, we even did Shake It Off, didn't we, by Taylor Swift, which was 
you know, totally way way out there number just to just to keep everyone on their toes. Um, yeah, everyone's going to know every single song, but yeah, you're right. You've got to forget the original because our choirs we're in three and four part harmonies, and there'll be times when you don't sing the tune. You have to uh, sort of back up the tune with a harmony. But that's that's part of the discipline, part of the fun, and it's a lovely thing to be uh, be a part of. And what about performances? Again, it's we don't want to put pressure on people. Um, so there will be a large number of members who want to do performances and would like that experience. Uh, and so for those members, we will put on performances. So, for example, this term, it's it's our Christmas term. So Plymouth Rock Choir will be doing a big Christmas concert in December. Uh, and it's going to be a choir of 100 and over 100 in that. So lots of people want to do that one. Uh, but then we'll be in Plimpton with their light switch on doing a, a performance there. And Ivy Bridge, this is their Christmas fair. That's at the end of November. So the, the performances um, and experiences vary, don't they? Um, but you don't have to do them. Uh, you do have to learn all your your words and your moves and your notes. There's a little bit of pressure on there, if you like. But um, you, you don't you don't have to do it till you're ready. So some members might take a whole year before they do their first performance. Um, but yeah, we've got before. I got I think I've got fifteen. 15 choir performances in November, December across across South Devon. So, uh, hey, busy yeah. man. Yeah, you'll spot us. You'll spot us somewhere. We'll be we'll be there. Obviously, I was a teacher for 25 years. So, uh, part of running the choir is is teaching. So, I get that that bit of inspiration from being a teacher. But I'm also a performer as well. So, I get a bit of both. Uh, to stand up in front of 100 people every week, you've got to be a bit of a performer. So, I get that. Uh, the the feedback I get from a choir singing every week is unbelievable. I mean, a choir members say how much they they get they get from it and go home buzzing. Well, I, I get that times a hundred because I get to hear all the hundred voices coming back at me. And I do that four times a week for thirty weeks a year. So, yeah, it is. It's a lovely, lovely job. Um, and do people do as they're told, Richard? No, 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 not always. <laughs> but that's part of the challenge, isn't it? I think people are nervous, aren't they? Anything to do with music and singing, people are a little bit insecure. They're not sure. So there are there are nerves. Um, but generally speaking, I think um, we were in a pretty tight ship, don't we, down here? And uh, I think the, uh, the sound is amazing. And the performances, people always comment on how professional we look and how professional we are, uh, which makes me feel good because I, I do like to hear that. Great. Right. Um, and uh, finally, what is your favourite rock choir song? Oh, do you know what? I knew you were going to ask me that. That's so you were prepared. <laughs> Not, no, because I don't have one. Um, it's difficult, isn't it? I mean, I because we do such a wide range. I mean, my my background is I'm, I'm a classical violinist, so I love everything from Shostakovich, a heavy classical Russian composer, right through to the Beatles in the 60s. I love it all. Um, so rock choir song, you're going to pin me down, aren't you? You're going to want one. Um, it's going to have to be a ballad because I, I do love hearing the choir sing the slower the slower ballad. So Hallelujah, Thousand Years, those two. But, I, you know, I love the fast ones. I love it. Going, going loco down in Acapulco is, a, is an absolute belter. Um, and we did that recently, actually, at the uh, Guildhall. Um, and the audience just got up and started dancing and singing along. It's just one of those songs, isn't it? It gets everybody involved. But yeah, if you push me, I'd, I'd go with it, one of the ballads. Hallelujah.
lovely way to finish a podcast. Oh. Love, love that. Good it's stuff. Nice and chilled out now. Thank you very much for listening. This has been the Devoncast. I've been Guy. I've been Alison. And I've been Brad. There you go, the gang of three bringing you the podcast today. We'll be back very, very shortly with another Devoncast. You can hear this on the Radio X website. You can get it where you usually get all your podcasts. Thank you for listening. Devoncast from Radio X.